Hi, this is Brandy Wilson and Jessica Smith, and this is hashtag Facts Matter. Thanks for joining us. This month, we're going to talk about stimulant overamping. It can also be called stimulant overdose. Um, that's this is going to be part two of our overdose prevention series. Last month, we talked about opiate overdose. So, thanks for joining us. So in this first segment, we are going to talk about uh, what stimulants are and what overamping is. So Brandy's going to start us off by talking a little bit about what stimulants are. Stimulants, they come in a range of things. There's Adderall, methamphetamine, cocaine, MDMA, and all the other MDMA. MDAs, those things, all of the things that amp us up and uh, give us more energy. We don't need as much sleep. We don't need as much, really, of anything, we think. Um, And a lot of people think that it's not possible to overdose on stimulants. But, in fact, that is not true. Um, and Jessica is going to tell us what that might look like if someone is overamping. That way we know how to identify it. Yeah. So like Brandy was saying, um, it is in fact possible to quote unquote overdose. Um, it's, it's different for stimulants. Um, and that's why we refer to it as overamping. Um, if there is an actual fatal overdose, it's, that's likely because there's something else involved, maybe polysubstance use or or a stimulant that's effect that's uh, tainted with fentanyl. But we'll get to that a little later. Um, so right now, I just kind of want to give you a rundown of what exactly overamping is. Um, so like I said, it's a term that we use to describe an overdose on a stimulant, something like methamphetamine, cocaine, ecstasy. Um, and it, it kind of varies in, in what it actually means. So sometimes there's going to be some physical symptoms um, and the body's actually physically worn down or, you know, reacting in a physical way. And there's also psychological things that happen. Um, and Brandy's going to talk more about those actual symptoms in a little bit here. Um, and so, you know, it, it's it's not as clear cut all the time as, as someone, say, you know, overdosing on opiates where they're non-responsive, turning blue, like, essentially dying it overamping is going to look different for different people um, and some folks might think that they're not overamping and other folks might be very clear that it is um, either way it's really important to sort of notice the symptoms and and help folks if you if you believe that they are in need of some assistance and so overamping is actually caused again by by different reasons um, you could use a little stimulants or you could use a lot of stimulants and you could still end up over amping just depending on your body and what sort of situation you might find yourself in you might be in a situation where you're using stimulants with people that you're really not comfortable with and that can send you into like an over amping experience um, or you could be using and maybe you're on like a multiple day bender and you haven't slept in a long time and then that's gonna cause some symptoms of over amping so to try to explain this a little better, Brandy's going to give us some some symptoms to look for. And the symptoms, they could vary. And some stimulants 
really certain symptoms kind of hold true to that. And some of them, you know, any of them can show up. But a lot of times, like, meth has has really specific symptoms that might be different from MDMA. Um, nausea and vomiting, that one can happen a lot of times with stimulants. You end up vomiting nothing. Um, sometimes it'll just be bile. It's It's really not fantastic. Um, falling asleep and passing out. And, and I know that seems counterintuitive, but a lot of times when there's just too much, we just shut down. Um, I've had experience with a few people who have, you know, they go to parties and do too much, um, ecstasy that's got a lot of meth in it and they really do just go to sleep. Um, it's actually not very safe. So chest pains and if your chest is tightening and it sort of feels like you can't get any air and you can't breathe, um, that's a symptom. Pay attention to these things. Uh, if you're sweating and your heart rate is very high, pay attention to that. Maybe try and calm that. Um, we talked about breath and if parts of your body are just jerking and you can't really control them, uh, that's a, that's something that we need to pay attention to. A severe headache, because remember our brain is involved in all of that. Um, and a lot of these things, you know, a stroke. A lot of people have strokes because of stimulants. And that is definitely something to keep in mind, as well as pay attention to Remember how many drugs are being done. Um, and then those are really the physical ones. There are some mental ones that go along with that. And that's the anxiety and, and panic. Um, and if you're someone who's done stimulants, you know about the anxiety and panic. Uh, paranoia, extreme paranoia. That one really, that one, that one is really prevalent a lot of times after some sleep deprivation um, hallucinations, hallucinations, <laughs> um, agitation, being aggressive, um, you're not keeping your drugs in check, you've done too many, you can't keep control of yourself, um, and enhanced, like, if everything is, is irritating you and bothering you that might be touching you, or if everything's too much, um, and you just can't, it, not you, but someone, someone just can't take it in, um, that can cause a lot of psychological, um, distress. And so those are really important pieces to watch for in, you know, combined the symptoms and now knowing what it looks like. Um, those are really important things to pay attention to. And now, you know, now you, we all might understand certain things that we're seeing a little bit better. Mm-hmm. All right. In this next segment, we are going to talk about who's at risk for overamping. Um, now that we have some information on what exactly it is and symptoms to look for, it's important to know who might be at risk. Um, and sort of generalizations and stigma really tell us to look just for people who may be on the street or homeless and just getting high on methamphetamines, but there are lots of other folks who aren't maybe in that situation who are using stimulants and can be at risk. Um, So one of those populations include students. 
students, you know, they have a lot of stuff on their plate. They've got to do a lot of homework and write papers. I know I was a big procrastinator. So, you know, if people are <laughs> waiting to the last minute and you've got to pull an all-nighter, students often turn to stimulants such as Adderall to help them stay awake and stay focused. Um, you know, a lot of people are prescribed these drugs and they actually need them to help them pay attention. Um, but oftentimes students seek out their friends or other people to actually, to find these stimulants. So they're not even prescribed to them, but they still, they still use it. Um, there was a study done in 2013 and they found that 70% of people that they interviewed and that were a part of the study started stimulant use in college. So college really is kind of like you know, a place where folks are like, all right, I need to stay awake and get things done. Like, how can I make this happen? Um, and so the study also found that the majority of, of students, they were using it to, you know, stay focused and stay awake. Um, about, whoop, where did it go? About 82%, eight, sorry, 87% of these students actually got their stimulants from their friend. So, that's all fine and dandy as long as you are aware of what you're doing and if you're just asking your friend for some drugs and you have no idea like how much to take or what the possible repercussions are that's when folks can maybe get into trouble and find themselves in an overamping situation so always go slow always go slow if you're gonna yeah. go go slow <laughs> um another place is the multiple different kinds of party scenes there are that exist like, there's underground party scenes, there's rave party scenes, there's... Um, festivals. There's festivals. Uh, there's MSM party scenes, party and play. Um, and parties and parties and parties. <laughs> because if, you know, a lot of times people find that stimulants allow you to stay up longer, they, you know, less... Less feeling funny so, about social dancing. Social barriers. Yeah, less uh-huh. being socially awkward, like I'm pulling <laughs> off right now. Um, so there's a lot in the party scene. Yeah, um, so I will speak a little from experience, um, starting college and whatnot, and sort of getting into the festival scene specific, um, and also a couple of uh, love fests, those festivals they did in a while for in San Francisco. Um, I remember seeing kids being pulled out of there in emergency vehicles. Um, and I was always told, like, as long as you stay hydrated, you're going to be fine. Um, which hydration is always a key for any sort of drug that you're doing. Um, but it was never really on my mind that I could actually do myself some serious harm from, you know, taking ecstasy or MDMA. And when you kind of get wrapped up in that scene and you're dancing really hard and you just feel like, oh, I'm hot because I'm dancing or, oh, I'm thirsty because I'm active, it's really important to actually pay attention, have the buddy system in place, like really check on your friends and check on people because there there can be a situation like we're talking about where all of a sudden everything is so intense and you're too hot and you're too dehydrated that you could have a stroke or even heart attack um, or pass out. If you're in a situation and you're at a party and maybe you don't know as many people, like Brandy said, you can actually pass out. And the danger in that is that if you're passed out in a space and you don't have anyone looking out for you, 
you know, people might take advantage and that's just a horrible situation altogether. So, yeah, it's really important to, to know these things so that you can take care of yourself and everyone around you because that's sort of, I think, the big thing in the party scene. Even though people are partying, they want to make sure, you know, they're looking out for one another. And it it absolutely is possible to over, you know, quote-unquote overdose, um, to have fatal to have a fatal overdose with stimulants. Not only... <laughs> methamphetamines and cocaine but mdma as well uh you know some of us went to electric daisy carnival a number of years ago and somehow uh this lovely young lady we didn't know her this was happening we were walking by um there was ambulance unfortunately this young woman had taken too much ecstasy right at the beginning and she overheated and died and so it is absolutely possible. And like Jessica said, man, take care of yourself and your friends. If that, you know, and if you're going, go slow. Mm-hmm. Um, you can always take more, but start, start small. And, and know as much as you can your source, you know, never the best idea to mm-hmm. let a stranger hand you a pill. Um, Even though it may, may be tempting. Uh-huh. Uh, if you have awesome resources available like dance safe or drug testing or zenlo project um drug testing is great if it's available i know that the drug war is kind of cracking down on that stuff for a while and there's mixed feelings about you know whether they let drug testing organizations come to parties um another area where there is meth use and some potential for overamping that we see a lot is for folks without houses and unfortunately like people think that drug use is the reason that they don't have a house but in fact many times and what's that 78 percent of our consumers that took a survey said that meth use their meth use is either it it exists or is more because of the fact that they have no house and research that i believe jessica did then she will share with us also shows that that is a major reason why people who are on the streets um their amount of meth use and whether they use or not a lot of times um there's a there's a correlation there because if if you're living on the streets and and you if you're staying alone or even with friends you know you have to watch out not only for your personal being but your belongings so this idea of needing to be alert and awake to protect yourself and your stuff that that really impacts methamphetamine use because if you're using something you can stay awake all night then you can be sure that your stuff and yourself and maybe your friends or your animal whatever the case is 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 staying safe um so there was actually a study done in 2015 um and they interviewed 592 folks um and 67 
percent of those people were homeless and they indicated they were homeless and also using meth. Um, this study also talked about methamphetamine use as well as heroin. We'll get to that again like in a little bit um, about sort of that polysubstance use injecting both meth and heroin. Um, and then... Or MDMA and pills. Yes. Like, Vicodin. Like, that's a possibility, too. Doesn't have to be meth and heroin. Uh, cocaine and heroin. That was a big one in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I know, um... And maybe in other places where cocaine's available. My generation, people have been really into cocaine and Xanax. I actually know of somebody that passed away that I went to high school with um, from the use of Xanax and cocaine together. Um, And that's because one is a stimulant and one is not. Xanax is a benzodiazepine. Um, So... I think people think a lot about how, oh, well, if I'm taking an upper and a downer, then they're going to kind of counterbalance each other. And it doesn't work that way and can actually be very harmful. Same with alcohol. If you're mixing alcohol with pretty much anything, it's going to increase your risk. But if you're going to do it, just keep that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Watch your amounts. Watch your amounts. Start small. Take less of one. See how it goes. All right, so we've been telling you all these horror stories. I'm like, ah! So how about we give you some helpful stuff? Yay! Um, (laughs) In this segment, we're going to talk about how people can prevent it and um, things you can do if if you're in a situation where you or someone you know or someone you don't know is clearly in an over-amping situation. Um, So... This isn't like an opiate overdose where we have a antidote. There is no naloxone for stimulant overamping. Um, but if someone is exhibiting those things, um, some things you can do. If you're inside, um, maybe go outside and take some deep breaths. Um, you know, changing the environment can change a lot of things. It can change someone's heart rate. Um, you know, if there's a lot of stimulation, um, just changing that environment. Um, and if someone is really, like, if if they're exhibiting the chest pains and the not being able to breathe, um, some of those more, more serious ones... Um, you have to go to a doctor. Um, and that, that can be difficult, absolutely. However, um, you can stroke. You can stroke out. You can heart attack. And so you have to go to the doctor if that's happening. Um, but if that's not happening, you know, you can change your environment. Drink some water. We, we actually, so when it's hot outside... Um, when it's hot outside and then you're on a lot of stimulants, it makes it even more at risk. So a lot of times we'll put up a tent outside as well as have a big container of cold water and some chairs so that 
people who may clearly be in an overamping situation have a place that is, you know, reduced stimulation. It's a change of environment. It's a place to sit down, take some deep breaths, hydrate, and get some food if you haven't had any food, and sleep. Sleep, it, try to sleep. Um, those are all things that you can do if, you know, you are in an overamping situation, but it might not be a life and death one. If it's a life and death one, you have to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. There's just not any way around that one. Um, and at the ER, a lot of times, um, they, they are using, um, you know, benzos or some thing like that to help bring you down. Um, but that's, that's poly substance if it's on the street and that tends to get a little bit more dangerous. Um, yeah, we've, we've been saying we're going to talk about some poly substance use. So let's talk about some poly substance use. Um, we talked about it a little bit already. Um, and like we said, you know, it's not just the big ones, meth and heroin, you can mix all sorts of things. Um, cocaine is an interesting drug because I think folks maybe think of it as less likely to induce an overdose. I know that's kind of always been in my head of like, you probably have to do some super large quantity to even come close. Um, but with fentanyl now being on the streets, it's actually a lot easier for people to overdose on cocaine. Um, and again, if you're mixing it with other things, and if you don't know if fentanyl's in there, it can be extremely dangerous, life-threatening. So like we talked about, you know, if you have the ability to test your drugs, um, either with like a full-on reagent kit, where you can test for all sorts of things, or even, you know, we provide our consumers with fentanyl test kits, um, so that they can test things. And I, I'm not sure about locally, but definitely like in the Bay Area, people are talking about cocaine and pressed pills coming up with fentanyl. Um, and so as far as cocaine overdoses go, in 2016, um, more than 10,000 Americans died from an overdose involving cocaine. So that's yeah, just kind of crazy to me. So that's involving cocaine or cocaine specific? This was involving cocaine. Okay. So this is this is again with that poly substance is a lot of them had to do with either fentanyl being involved or with poly substance use. Um and I think somewhere we have some data on our consumers and their poly substance use. Um 70% we yes. had from our survey last year. And that we're using meth and heroin together. Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, they've indicated all sorts of different drugs um, and, you know, using multiples at once. And we, and alcohol, we just, big reminder, alcohol <laughs> is also a drug. Um, it has a very different kind of stigma attached to it, way less than some of these other drugs um but you know it it can be just as if not more deadly when you're not careful and measuring and going slow and watching out for yourself um our county actually so 
We've historically had just drug, um, drug mortality rates are just well above everyone else's. And ours have remained pretty steady over the last couple years um, while everyone's are increasing, but ours are still ridiculously high. Um, and some of that is our meth, um, our meth rates and our poly rates. But one of the things that I find interesting about what happens in our community is last year we had one more um, meth specific fatality than we did opiate specific. Um, so meth use is rampant in white rural communities. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just. That's historically where it really, there's a robust amount of it happening. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so we talked a lot about stimulants today mm-hmm. and a little bit about poly substance use and a little bit how to try and stay alive. Yeah. Um, Good news at the end there. Yeah, so. Thanks for joining us for our third episode. This month, actually, in two weeks, exactly. We're going to New Orleans! Yay! (laughs) Uh, We're going to be at the National Harm Reduction Conference. And so next month's episode is going to be all about the great and juicy, awesome things we learned there. Um, And a little bit about our experience there. And... Got anything to say, Jessica? I'm really excited. <laughs> We're going to have lots of things to, to bring to you next time, I'm sure. I looked through the schedule already and went crazy underlining and highlighting, and I don't know how I'm going to fit in all the things <laughs> and also try to explore New Orleans. Um, but, it's yeah, it's going to be fun, and, and I'm looking forward to talking to you all about it, and I'm sure Brandy is as well. Very excited. Uh we're holding a round table about rural leadership in the time of safe consumption sites, and we're participating in the Solidarity March um, by the Urban Survivors Union, which is a national group of many people who use drugs either currently, previously, um, And we're putting on a march. So next month, we're going to tell you all about that stuff. Mm -hmm. Thanks for joining us. And, ooh. And for a really exciting part of our podcast is it is sponsored in part by the Syringe Access Fund, a collaborative of the AIDS United, Elton John AIDS Foundation, the H. Van Emerigen Foundation, the Levi Strauss Foundation, and the Open Societies Foundation. We thank them so much for helping sponsor our podcast. Thanks, everyone. Until next time. Bye. Hi, this is Brandy Wilson. And Jessica Smith. And you're listening to Hashtag Facts Matter. Um, thanks for joining us. Happy day after the elections. Woohoo! We are so glad that is over. Oh well, yeah. It, we've been dealing with election BS coming at us for a good 18 months. Mm-hmm. People have been screaming, literally screaming at us. Mostly on the internet. <laughs> Thank goodness. 
the election's over. That doesn't mean the hate coming at us is going away. It just means that maybe we can work on our programs for a little instead of all of this crazy political pandering. Exactly. So, thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm. So, this will be our fourth podcast. We've had three, Harm Reduction 101, um, and two segments of overdose prevention, one focusing on stimulants and one focusing on opiates. This episode, we are going to talk about our amazing trip to the National Harm Reduction Conference in New Orleans. Um, yeah, we got a lot out of it. So the annual National Harm Reduction Conference is a conference put on by the Harm Reduction Coalition. And it is a place for people who work in, volunteer in, live, do all the things related to harm reduction. Um, This year was in New Orleans, Louisiana, which besides being amazing because New Orleans, um, is a really important place to have a conference on harm reduction. Um, There were over 2,000 people there this year from all over the U.S., um, harm reduction organizations and people from rural counties and rural states, from big urban and suburban places, um, a lot of information shared. And other countries? People other, from countries. other countries. Yes, yes. There is an international harm reduction conference, which is in Portugal this coming next next year, 2019. But yes, people from, from all over the world were also at this one, um, including Spain. I think I saw they yeah. had a... A little booth set up. They were um, also in the fashion show. Yes, yes, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, they started one of the first, the only, the, the first, the only um, women-specific harm reduction center in Spain. Um, so that's super neat. That's pretty amazing. We do have a guest with us today, <laughs> and he is sort of, um, he is... A puppy that hangs out here every day, all day. He's one of our staffs. His name is Rebel. He's about a 65-pound, beautiful, pity boy. And he is just the most absurd thing. I think we'll make him... Uh, maybe he'll be our cover photo so everybody Yay. can see how amazing he is. He's he's repping our Health Choice Voice shirt today for <laughs> HCV testing at Hatcher. So, yes, everyone, welcome Mr. Rebel. So bear with us if there's funny noises, because he is a bull in a china shop. He's a puppy in a needle exchange. One of the great things about the conference is Harm Reduction Coalition's value that they put on the knowledge and information and inclusion of people who use drugs. So... Every program had, almost every program brought people with them who are consumers or peers or connected in some way to the program and who also use drugs. So that was amazing. And we had four people from our group go, um, two peer leaders and then Jessica and I, but we also really encouraged and supported one of our community partners to go and they did. And it was the most amazing thing to watch another community partner begin to see that you know, all of the stuff that we're always saying and the way that we're pushing things, um, that 
that we're not alone and we're not acting in a silo, that this is happening everywhere and that this is a social movement along with other things. And we'll talk about that stuff later too. So we hope you are as excited to talk about the New Orleans Conference as we are. So we're going to spend some time talking about the cool stuff that we learned. Um, We talk a lot, obviously, with, with our work in our organization, harm reduction, related to people who use drugs, Um, but harm reduction is related to a lot of other things, including people who engage in sex work. And because of the recent passing of SESTA and FOSTA, um, harm reduction and sex work was a big theme this year, and there were a lot of discussions, including like a main plenary discussion. Um, So beyond that one, I went to a couple other ones Um, one specifically by two folks who work at St. James Infirmary in San Francisco, um, really great organization that does, is run for and by people who engage in sex work. Um, and just in general, I want to say that this conference really centered the voices of women and women of color, um, and people of color in general and, people who identify as LGBTQIA. So that was really important and amazing to sort of get those perspectives that are often silenced. Um, so yeah, so... Sorry. Puppy trouble. Puppy, Puppy trouble. trouble. <laughs> um, so the big thing that was discussed about SESTA and FOSTA is that that shit don't work. <laughs> uh, it was created and and these are sort of extensions of laws that have already been in place um and and they were created under this idea to prevent sex trafficking sex trafficking and sex work are not the same thing um and what these laws essentially force people to kind of do is label themselves as a victim of sex trafficking when that's might not be the case um It also takes the power and autonomy away from sex workers. And the thing that it it was trying to prevent is it's actually creating. So people who enact sex work no longer have a safe place to find dates. They no longer have, you know, like a, a listed bad date book that everybody can access. Um, and now the power is going into, other people that are trying to get dates for them and they have less control um I meant to bring my notes with me from this talk and I forgot I'm sorry but there was like an absurd percentage of people who went in San Francisco went from being indoors engaging in sex work indoors to out on the streets because they lost things like Craigslist personal ads and back back page all of the platforms Yeah, where sex workers were essentially able to screen the people that they were going to have an exchange with, and now they're not able to do that. Um, So it's really important that before we sort of sign anything or or vote on anything to really have a clear understanding and and to get the knowledge and that understanding from people who are actually engaged in the work that this is going to impact the most. Mm-hmm. And that was like another huge sort of overarching theme is that people who do sex work, people who use drugs, these are people with lived experience. They know what they're fucking talking about. 
(laughs) (laughs) And they can really guide us into some great policy decisions and not things that are going to end up hurting them. And we see that here. Um, We have seen a very, very large and very forward-moving action to address sex trafficking, which real sex trafficking absolutely is horrific and should absolutely be addressed. But like Jessica was talking about, um, you know, unintended consequences. Once you know about the consequences, they're no longer unintended. So we're here telling you today about those consequences. And Mm -hmm. we see them all the time on the street. Um, You know, there's this large narrative that there are no independent sex workers here in our community. Well, that's just not even true. We see them on a, we see these folks on a regular basis and we provide space for them to now because you know, they're either have to claim victimhood or go to jail. There's no more, um, you know, you can get in trouble now. Um, and, and so we provide space so that people who engage in sex work once a week can come together, talk about safety issues, talk about people who might be taking folks and, you know, there's some really horrible stories that we have heard because people no longer can vet their clients, which is what those platforms really allowed them to do. And it's putting women in our community, women and men, and all all gendered folks um, that in access sex work, it's putting them in serious grave danger. Um, you know? Yeah. I just want to say something real quick, too. Um Sex work, at least in the context that it was talked about at this conference, and I, and I think it's probably a good thing to just go by in general, sex work is an umbrella term for anybody who is engaging in exchanging sex, your body. So that includes prostitution, it includes cam models, it includes stripping, it includes pornography. Phone sex! So, phone sex. So if you are like vehemently and adamantly against people who exchange sex for money but you watch a ton of porn or you like to go see strippers heading down to the tip top for like (laughs) i'm sorry but no absolutely not (laughs) like you're being a big fat hypocrite and if you're gonna support one (laughs) you gotta support everybody these are human beings who are making a living doing one of the oldest jobs in the history of humanity so give a give give a person a break man and and help support sound safe policy and we are we are very opposed to sex trafficking but sesta and fosta is not preventing it 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 is actually making it worse Jessica is not screwing around today, <laughs> friends. No. She is not screwing around. She's dropped the f bomb. She's sorry, friends. <laughs> I, <right>. Yeah. <laughs> so in this next part of our podcast, I'm going to talk a little bit about a project called "Reframe the Blame." Um, And that comes out of a quote-unquote union of people who use drugs. Um, It's a national, it's a national group, but it also, there's a, 
there's an international group of people who use drugs as well. And what this movement, this reframe the blame um, action is, is it comes out of the National Drug Users Union. And because of the opioid crisis, um, and once it started hitting white suburban areas and, and stuff like that, people had some really reactionary reactionary feelings towards it. And, um, you know, a number of years ago, uh, Good Samaritan laws were made. And that was, you know, reduce the penalties around overdose for people who are around. So if someone overdoses, you can call 911 without the fear of arrest or citation for usable small personal amounts of drugs or paraphernalia. Um, that has encouraged people to call 911, which reduces loss of life. Um, it's, it makes it so that people aren't afraid to call in case of overdose. Well, with the opioid crisis recently, more and more communities have started pressing charges for manslaughter if someone um, overdoses and, you know, say they were using with someone else um, and the person calls 911 and because they were using together um, or maybe they shared the same bag, you know, they could go in on a bag together, split it, and the person that overdoses, if, if they overdose and die... And the person who calls 911, there are communities now where this person is being charged with manslaughter and convictions. Um, and what Reframe the Blame does is it's a policy push that started within the Drug Users Union and is becoming a national push. And this was really rolled out um, on a large scale at the convention. It had started um, around Overdose Awareness Day. I know that we had um, one of our peer leaders did a lot of work on informing people about what this is. There's a do not prosecute order. Um, currently, those don't hold a lot of weight. They're really more a tool for us to start showing that this isn't okay, um, that we need to allow people to call 911 and and if people can't call 911, people will die. And if you're dead, you can't ever find healthier choices. And so all this does is take us back to like 1980, where you're going to have people, you know, overdosing. So someone throws them in a car and throws them out of, you know, out on the sidewalk, a block away from the emergency room, hoping someone takes care of them. And that's not because they don't care about their friend. That's because two lives shouldn't be lost in that in that moment of use. Um, you know, if that person is charged and convicted of homicide, that person's now gonna go to prison for nothing other than sharing a bag of dope with their friend. And so that is punitive, it's reactionary, it does nothing, absolutely nothing. Because time and time again, research has shown that threats of criminal prosecution um, do not change behaviors around drug use, they don't. Period. There's no but when, but if. Period. They don't. Um, that's what the evidence supports. That's what we should be thinking about. We should be thinking about ways in which 
people can access treatment, people can access services. We need to have the information around how to, you know, if you're going to use, how do you stay safe? How do you not die? There's the dog. Um, and so reframe the blame really tries to get that public message out there that we need to remember this is a public health crisis. This isn't a, we can't do, the criminal injustice system is going to do nothing for us on this except make it worse. Um, drug addiction doesn't go away just because you're in some handcuffs. Um, it doesn't. <laughs> I don't, there's not, I'm kind of on a rant now. Anyway, reframe the <laughs> blame. And days. it was started by Jess Tilly and Louise Vincent. And right now they are the co-chairs of the National Drug Users Union. And I'm hoping that in the coming months we can have one of them on to further explain it. They're amazing. I love them so hard. Um, Louise actually got the Dan Big Award um, this year at the conference. It was the first year that that award was given out. Um, Dan passed a few months ago and that award was given to like the most badassery change agent that we have. And Luis has just really kicked ass for a very long time. And they're gonna keep doing it yearly for a while. So maybe one year Brandy will get it. Oh, I'm gonna edit that out. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but you're a badass. <laughs> I don't care, I'm editing that out. So another really big conversation that, you know, constantly happened at this conference was about peers and the role that peers have and should have in harm reduction organizations. And the movement at every level. And the, Yeah, and the movement, <laughs> all of the things. And like Brandy said when we started, there were tons of peers there, including some two of our own. Um, these are people who work at the organization and these peers um ours all of the other ones these are people who may or may not still use drugs and if they are still using drugs they are still essential to the work being done to the movement they are valued and they should be valued more that is really what was at the base of all of these conversations is that peers deserve to be treated like they have so much work experience, AKA life experience, and they should be valued and paid accordingly for that. They are the experts. They are the experts. They are treated as the experts because that is what they are. And organizations and people and the movement should try really hard to make sure that peers don't just stay in that quote unquote peer position, looked at as sort of, well, you know, you're not quite hourly, you're not quite an employee, but we really value as a, you as a peer. No, like real harm reduction work is supposed to make it so that peers can move on to the next level, which for most of them is going to be a paid hourly staff position. Um, and they shouldn't be getting paid less because they don't have an MA or a PhD behind their name. That's ridiculous. They have probably more experience and knowledge than a lot of people running organizations. So it was Go ahead. Sorry, there's a guy there's a guy and in his signature um he works in harm reduction. He is he's a pretty big name and his title at the bottom of these emails is he's a streetologist. <laughs> I like that. that. I just want to throw that, that in. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. 
So that was just really interesting because also we've got some pushback about what it means for someone to be a peer and that they have to be sober. They have to have stopped their drug use and have gone through all those motions and now they're aiding people to do the same. Well, peers can still be using drugs and maybe they just have better habits and better ways to take care of themselves now. And if they can get that knowledge across to other people who may be in more chaotic drug use or may not know really how to 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 best work with their health and healthcare providers, if they're able to share that knowledge, then they're making a huge impact. And it doesn't matter if they are still maybe using drugs. Like that's that's not the point. The point is is that they have knowledge and they've made any sort of positive change in their life that they can then share with other people who might be looking for some advice or who might be struggling and they feel like, oh, well, it's it's almost like they're not feeling like someone's over them, right? And saying like, oh, look at me, I'm better than you because I've come this far. It's just like, hey, we're both in the situation and I have found these tools that help me do this. Like, do you want to hear about that? Do you, would those tools be useful for you as well? Like somehow someone, if they aren't using drugs at this current time, that immediately bestows on them social capital Mm -hmm. and, and social status. That's not true. Yeah, <laughs> it's if, not true. If, if, if you've been there, if you've lived the life, and you've you've got some of the same things going on that people might still have going on, and you might still have going on, or maybe you've moved, moved past. Either way, you still have that knowledge. You're still that expert, and you can and relay that information to other people, and not only other consumers and people using services, but people who are running the show and making the policy. That's the big thing: is that peers, people who use drugs, need to be included in all steps, in all organizing and policy making and movement building because they are the experts. There's a lot of beliefs about that and there's a lot of old information. And so when people also, I see a lot of times, and I've heard, we've straight up been told, well, that, you know, best practices when Someone tried to tell us that peer best practices mean someone who used to use drugs and no longer does. That's not true. Um, I, I, maybe 10 years ago. Mm. Um, but that's not true and that's not what research shows. There's also best practices for all sorts of different things, right? right? So best practice for harm reduction may not be the same as best practice for 12-step or yeah. AANA sort of stuff. Right. So... We were in a conference with 2,000 other people who were like, Who are the experts. (laughs) Who are the experts. We were with the experts. Who say, yes, peers can be and are many, if not most of the time, people who still use drugs. And so, in my head, all I can think right now is, oh God, people are going to be like, rah, rah, rah. Right? (laughs) So, let's talk for a real quick second before this segment ends about... Drugs. And what are drugs? Mm. Drugs and drugs and drugs, right? We are not talking about, when we say, you know, everyone uses drugs. This is a tagline that, well, it's something I have said and it's something I believe. um, But it's also something everyone beats me with. Oh my God, did you see she said that? Um, Okay, I'll say it again. Everybody uses drugs in one way, shape, or form or another. So, religion 
lights up the same center in your brain as drugs. So when I say everybody uses drugs, drugs are a thing that change the way your brain is functioning or it changes your mental state at that time. Praying, Facebook, there's been tons of research showing that those little red tick marks on your Facebook, that you're addicted to those, which also explains a lot of the really absurd trolling we've experienced. <laughs> Go get your red clicks on, but don't tell me you don't use drugs. Coffee, coffee's a stimulant. It's a big stimulant. Cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Alcohol. Adrenaline. So do you like to drive fast? Do are, like do you have road rage? Because I know that. That <laughs> shit can be a little addicting. Anyway, kind of on a roll now. Um, Point is, drugs change the chemistry in your brain. So likely some one habit that you probably have and don't really think about as a drug is a drug in the sense that it is making the same sort of physical change. Um, and again, that's what harm reduction acknowledges is that different drugs have different inherent dangers and different ways that you curb or reduce those harms. So, And those dangers come from policy. Mm-hmm. The dangers are from policy. I'll, we'll have a rant and, about and, policy <laughs> in a coming podcast. And just lack of education. If yeah. you don't know about what you're doing because of prohibition and because of this whole decades and decades worth of just say no... And which and has been shown to not work. Yeah. Look at the millennials and look at Generation X. <laughs> it didn't work. It made us worse. Knock it off. Yes. Good policy <laughs> education. End rant. <laughs> End rant. We're going to go on to another segment. We might uh, edit some of that out, but probably not. So in this last part, we are going to talk about um, one of the sessions that I led um, at the Harm Reduction Conference. And that was entitled Rural Leadership in the Time of Safe Consumption Sites. Um, Because when AB 186 was drafted and then um, came out and then Humboldt was put on, uh, that was, Assemblymember Wood was amazing and knows Humboldt's issues and put Humboldt on the safe consumption site bill. There is a large misconception that somehow myself has enough power or influence in any way to get this, to get us included. Man, thanks for thinking of me like that. <laughs> but that's not real in any way. Um, I don't have enough power to do anything. <laughs> except run our own organization um i i didn't do that and it was obnoxious and it still is obnoxious <laughs> that like i take the hits for that shit but thank you assembly member wood for putting us on there and thanks senator mcguire for really supporting um looking into that and you know trying to find good ways for us to make it through this this most recent surge of the opioid crisis. So, short story long, um, (laughs) I held a round table and it brought together some 
rural leaders working in harm reduction throughout the country. There were people from New York, Arizona, Nevada, California. New Mexico? New Mexico. Utah. Utah. Lots of places. Mm -hmm. Lots of great people. And what we... And this is sort of a hope that I had was that we would create a network of people living in rural areas doing harm reduction work. Um, because it's extremely challenging, extremely challenging. Not only do we have to fight harder for funding, we have to fight harder for everything because we have, you know, less people, um, less places looking to fund super fancy pilot projects. Um, we generally have more conservative politics and holy cow, this past 18 <laughs> months has been quite interesting. Um, and so rural work is just hard. It's really goddamn hard. And so we created this network as a way to share strategies, approaches, ideas, funding resources, and talk about policy and hopefully advocate for good rural policy from people doing rural work rebel agrees if you can't if you can't tell um he says we need more resources <laughs> so at this point hey at this point um i think we have about 30 people from all over the country and i'm really excited to see where this goes um we've it's gotten really great feedback everywhere it's been so i don't know We'll see. We shall see. So that kind of wraps it up for this month's episode of... Hashtag Facts Matter. Um, next month, I don't know if we told you, but next month, we're going to talk about syringe exchange. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah, we're, it's so loaded. I don't even know if a half hour will do it justice. But luckily, we have a podcast. So <laughs> we can talk about it as much or as little as we like. Um, but one of the beautiful things about our podcast is that it is in part funded by the Syringe Access Fund, a funding collaborative of AIDS United, Elton John AIDS Foundation, the H. Van Emerigen Foundation, the Levi Strauss Foundation, and Open Society Foundation. Thank you very much to them. And go get yourself some Levi's. One of my favorite things is when people protest us, <laughs> that I can see that they're wearing <laughs> Levi's. It just gives me a smile. And I'm like, please do. Go buy some Levi's. They're awesome. So until next time. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Please excuse any extra snark, but it is post-election day. It's been a rough uh, <laughs> minute, so yeah, we get a little leeway. We say so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Bye. See ya.